Hi, I'm Adam Sanford. I'm an academic life coach and professor in Los Angeles. And I'm Dinur Bloom. I'm a college professor in Los Angeles. And this is Learning Made Easier, a podcast where we discuss how we learn, how we teach, and how they overlap. This is episode 132, Internal Shifts to Help Deal with Difficult People. In our last two episodes, Adam and I have been talking about how to deal with difficult people, first preemptively, and then how to respond if they're already getting difficult. But in addition to what we do in interacting with the difficult person, we also need to take note of how we're interacting with ourselves. If we're stressed or angry, that could turn us into a difficult person, and we want to avoid that. Now, most of what we'll talk about in this episode are ways to handle the stress caused by a difficult person, either their existence or their behavior or both. But note that many of these are also ways you can handle stress in general. But when it comes to dealing with other people, there are several tools which are specific to handling the stress that others can generate in us. Now, most of the time, when we're under stress, we feel like the stress is our whole universe. It feels like we'll never get out of it, that it's just going to be forever, and that it colors everything. This isn't a great way to approach dealing with someone who's adding to your stress. So it helps to take some steps to bring your stress levels down before you try to deal with them. First, use the stop method. Stop whatever you're doing. Yes. Literally, stop. Sit down, put your phone away, turn away from the computer screen, look at something calming like a painting or a blank wall or outside. Let your eyes unfocus. If you wear glasses, take them off for a minute. The idea is to separate yourself from the stressful environment for a minute or two. After that, take three deep breaths. I recommend doing this like block breathing. In for a slow count of four, so one, two, three, four. Hold for that same slow count of four, and then exhale for a slow count of four. Hold for a slow count of four, and repeat the process. This will help your body calm down a little bit, as we talked about in episode 125. Speaking of your body, observe how it feels. Take a minute to check in once you've done with your deep breaths. How's your breathing now? How's your heart rate? How's your tension? Are your muscles tight? Are they tense? Take a minute to focus on actually stretching and relaxing them. And one way to relax tight muscles is to tighten them even more and then relax them. You'll be amazed at how good that feels. And finally, proceed with kindness and compassion. So now that you've calmed yourself down, you can move forward. Remember, being kind and compassionate has to include being kind and compassionate to yourself, or it's not complete. The next step is to ask yourself, will I care about this problem in five minutes, five days, five weeks, and so on? A great trick for stress I've taught multiple students over the years is the 555 rule. Think about whether the stressor will still bug you in five minutes. Yeah, probably, most of the time. How about five hours? Maybe not as much. Five days? Mm, 
unless it's affecting your bank account or your physical health, it may not be important anymore. And so on until you've established this is not a stressor anymore. And eventually you will reach that point. Shifter's perspective. Adam and I are going to offer three guidelines that can help set you on the right path. And the first one is take a fact-finding approach. So when something goes wrong, resist that initial impulse, and it'll be strong, to look for someone to blame. For example, a student comes to you upset about their score on an exam. Don't assume that the student was lazy or didn't care. Instead, figure out how they studied. What study methods did they use? How long did they study for? If you're a student and you're mad, say, at one of your classmates, because they keep making noise in class, don't assume they're doing it on purpose. A lot of people fidget. A lot of people do what's called stimming. And they may not realize that tapping their pencil on the table is driving you absolutely crazy. So never assume it's done deliberately. Try to find out what the facts are instead. The second guideline is brainstorm solutions. Instead of correcting problems on the spot, engage your classmates or your students in identifying solutions. After all, they're usually the ones who know the most about how well things are working or aren't, and they can identify places where maybe we need to make some adjustments. And often, really simple and really small changes can create much better results. And simple and small changes, they don't require people to change who they are. They don't require them to change what they're capable of delivering or doing. Think of it as the ripple effect. Sometimes a small change creates a nice big ripple. Foster a learning environment. Create a space where people can make mistakes safely, learn from the mistakes, and move on. Now, this doesn't mean you put up with sloppy or lazy work, but instead, offer your students the freedom to take calculated risks without the fear that they're going to be punished if their idea doesn't turn out as well as they planned. Uh, Adam has a really, really excellent way of grading. He's talked about this on the podcast where students complete a certain number of bundles of assignments in order to choose their grade. And that's a really good way for students to be able to test different ways of learning. And it gives them the freedom to make mistakes without torpedoing their entire grade as long as they complete the work at a reasonably high quality. And recently, I've come up with a new twist on this, too. So in my classes, there are 15 bundles of assignments available. And to pass with a C, students have to complete five required bundles. But often what happens is a student gets done with, say, one piece of a bundle. They, you know, like the bundle has five available. They got to do three of them. And they try the first one and they're like, I suck at this. I can't do this. And the thing is that since there's five required, there's 10 optional, right? So they might try, say, a quiz, which is an optional bundle, and they bomb it. Or they might try it and just barely pass by the skin of their teeth, but they're like, I really don't want to go through that again. So what often happens is they'll reach the end of the semester, and they'll have five bundles, and each one has like one assignment completed. But they didn't want to go any farther in those particular bundles because it was just driving them crazy. So what I've done for this semester, and we're going to see how it works out, is I've created a sample pack bundle that is a 16th bundle, essentially. But it is basically you tried several different bundles. You didn't complete any of them, but you've gotten four assignments done. So that counts as its own sample pack bundle. And that allows them to move a step closer to the grade that they want. I think that this will probably reduce a lot of pressure on students and on me, because then I don't have to sit there and go, ah, 
They did two quizzes if they'd only done one more, but they also did a collaborative notes and they also did a uh, study group meeting. Hey, I can put those four together and say that's a sample bundle and you guys get credit for it. That also reduces the stress on me. By giving students time to explore their interests and being creative and allowing students to play to their strengths and away from their weaknesses, you're likely to find that students are less difficult and they're gonna be a lot more fun to work with than you ever imagined. This goes back to our early discussions on the podcast about the growth mindset and on focusing on progress, not perfection. You let people develop their strengths, you let them hide their weaknesses, and all of a sudden class doesn't become something to dread, it becomes something to look forward to. Along with these three guidelines, there's some other things that you can do too. And one of them is ask yourself, what is the story you're telling yourself about this difficult person versus what are the facts? And yeah, this can be a difficult one to look at closely because we generally assume that what we know is fact. And a lot of us don't take too well to finding out that it's not. A recent internet meme said, a fact is information minus emotion. An opinion is information plus experience. Ignorance is an opinion devoid of emotion. And stupidity is opinion that ignores a fact. So obviously, we'd rather not be ignorant or stupid, but that means we might have to let go of our opinions if they're not backed up by fact, especially when we're dealing with a difficult person already. An article from Harvard Law School's program on negotiation, which we'll link to in the show notes, emphasizes changing the blame game in order to change workplace culture. Now, the article itself focuses on restaurants, but we can use classrooms just as easily. When we judge other people, especially when we judge them negatively, we tend to attribute aspects of other people's behavior to internal characteristics. We assume that maybe a person is lazy or they always have a bad attitude. We don't really think about the circumstances beyond that person's control. Maybe they're being asked to do something new at work. Maybe they have new hours at work and they're not able to attend classes regularly as they used to. Maybe they've got caregiving obligations or they were sick. Maybe they flaked on a meeting because they had a flat tire. We tend to play the blame game when it comes to other people. But when we fall short of our own expectations, we tend to look for what caused us to miss our mark. So we're very aware I was feeling under the weather. We're aware I ran out of gas and it took me a while to get to a gas station. But we don't offer other people that same courtesy automatically. We let ourselves off the hook a lot easier than we let others off the hook. Now, psychologist Lee Ross calls this the fundamental attribution error. Some of you may have heard of this as correspondence bias or the attribution effect. But this mistake happens because we don't know what other people have experienced, we don't know what they're going through, and we don't know what their decision-making processes are. We don't know that people value the same classwork exactly as importantly as we ourselves do. As a result, we are aware of our own circumstances and we give ourselves a lot more leeway and we judge ourselves more sympathetically and more leniently than we judge other people. Basically, we give ourselves the charity of understanding life circumstances that intervene in our lives. 
But we don't always extend that understanding to other people, and we might think they're just giving us excuses instead of valid explanations. So in the classroom, teachers may assume an assignment wasn't done to standard because the student just doesn't care about learning, or they just don't care about this class, instead of realizing maybe something beyond the student's control affected their performance. And let's not let students off the hook either. When a teacher has a bad day, students might think, oh, this teacher's slacking off. I'm going to write them a terrible review when the time comes. And sometimes they do. I had a colleague once who was dealing with a cancer diagnosis and she was going through chemotherapy. She didn't tell her students that she was sick because she felt that it was inappropriate to share her medical information. But she got terrible reviews that semester. Students saying things like, she just doesn't pay attention to things that are important and she doesn't listen and she doesn't, and most of it was just she was so tired from the chemo that paying attention was really, really difficult. In the last few years, I've made a point of putting it in my syllabus. I'm disabled. These are the ways it shows up. Please don't hold me responsible for these things that I don't really have a lot of control over. If you need to talk with me about it, my door is open, you know, or well, my, my virtual door is open, you know, Zoom office hours are open. And, you know, I try very hard to give people the information they need to know what's going on so that if I come across as weird or mean or impatient, they can find out that, oh, that's because he's got this disability that makes it very difficult for him to do things like control his facial expressions or fix his tone of voice. You want to pick your battles. And for this, flexible due dates can be really handy in reducing some battles, as do having clear grading and clear extra credit and clear situations when you will round up grades. The clearer you are with rubrics and with your expectations, the fewer battles you're going to have to fight because expectations are laid out very clearly for everyone involved. The other thing about picking your battles, if you're a student, are those three points really important? Now, if your class has 700 points available and you've got 675, is it really important to have 678 or could you just allow it to just not be that big of a deal? I have had students come to my office freaked out at the idea that they have a 97% and they want those three points. It's so important to them to get those three points. But really, is it worth the amount of stress that they're putting themselves through, especially when it won't change their grade? Teachers, if you can make it clear that getting 79% is any different than getting 78%, they're both a C plus, right? And if a student is arguing about they want points and they have, let's say, 85%. And you explain to them 85% to 86% doesn't change the letter grade. You know, maybe helping them pick their battles too. I had one student who was convinced that unless she got 100% on everything, she would have an F in the class. And it took a while for her to understand, no, it, that's not how this class works. And there may have been classes where that works. And if that's the way that it works, then shame on those teachers because you shouldn't put your students in that situation. But also, those of you who are students who are high achievers, if you got a 95%, you probably have one of the highest grades in the class. And those extra five points probably aren't going to make a huge difference in your final grade in the class. So pick your battles. Oftentimes, the things that students want to fight about or the things that teachers want to make really rigid, it's just not worth it. See the good in a person. Adam just described his colleague who's going through chemo. Assume that a person is not malicious 
and out to get you. It's not someone's goal to make your day awful. Sometimes misunderstandings happen. Miscommunication happens. When situations like these happen, the best steps are to recognize the problem, apologize, and address the situation by figuring out a solution or solutions that work for all parties involved. Expect that whatever the conflict is between you and the difficult person will take time to resolve. We're human. We tend to want to have a resolution sooner rather than later. But if the other person's behavior or even sometimes sadly their existence is pushing your buttons, you might need to work on those buttons before you can stop reacting the way you're reacting. So identify the buttons and work through them so they stop making you feel so threatened or triggered. And there are several books that can help with this. They include Triggers by David Risho, The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk, and The Tao of Fully Feeling by Pete Walker, and we'll link to those in the show notes. Also, in addition to picking your battles, know your limits. It is not always your responsibility. Don't beat yourself up if the outcome is bad when you've done what you can reasonably do, and don't let their problems become your problems. Now, for some of us, this is really hard. We've been trained to feel responsible for other people's problems, so we've got to remember to let other people work out their own stuff. If you have difficulty not swooping in and fixing problems for other people, maybe it would be good to grab a post-it note and write on it, stay in your own lane, or this is a big steaming cup of not my problem. And for those of us who were trained to be rescuers and caretakers and saviors, and I'm looking at some of you, teachers, that can be difficult, but it's necessary. Know your limits. Lower your tolerance for bullies. If the difficult person is a bully, stand up to them. There are several ways to do this. First, tell them to stop. Use the stuck record technique we discussed in episode 128. If they don't, just keep saying it. Stop right now until they stop. If the person makes a mean joke, blow it off with humor or sarcasm. Second, don't try to befriend or humor them. Draw clear boundaries and refuse to let those boundaries be crossed. It's not okay when you use that slur during our meetings. Don't do it again. Third, don't react to anything they do with anything other than the command to stop or in order to comply with a boundary. Bullies are looking for a reaction. If you don't give them the reaction they want, they will give up and go find someone else to bully instead. And last, remind yourself that the words they're throwing at you are worthless because you don't care about their opinion. Again, refusing to give the bully the reaction will eventually make them give up. Denor and I just want to share our experiences with it. Denor? I've had sometimes, uh, especially in my intro classes, I've had students cover for absent group mates when people don't show up for the group presentation. And as you might expect, the presentation becomes a little choppy because I've got students who are definitely working outside their comfort zone trying to cover parts that they weren't expecting to. And I don't penalize the students who are doing that because I fully respect that they're trying to help the group do as well as they can. I know that they're in a situation outside their control. So some of my students have kept their group problems internal until after the semester, meaning that they were really nice to their group mates because they only told me about group problems well after grades had been submitted. And so there was no penalty assessed to people who weren't pulling their own weight. But for groups who couldn't internally resolve their disputes, 
I often have to remind people involved that sometimes shit happens. Sometimes life intervenes. And the lesson is to talk when that happens. When the issue is people insulting each other. And thankfully, that's been pretty rare. And I'd love to keep it that way. I remind my students that all of my students are capable. We know they're capable because they're in our classes. They wouldn't be in our classes if they weren't capable. That means that collectively, we can discuss work, we can discuss ideas without insulting each other. It'd be out of place for me as a teacher, as a professor to insult my students. It's out of place for them to insult each other. And I point out to my students that very, very, very few people respond positively to insults or to anger. Uh, so generally snapping at people is gonna do a lot more harm than it does good. Now I have to remember that when there's a difficult person in my life, it may not be the person who's the problem. It could just as easily be an echo from my own past, reminding me of someone that I clashed with or had problems with in, let's say, in a prior life, right? Earlier in my life, even when I was a child or a teenager. And this is how psychological triggers work. We encounter a situation that triggers an emotion that we never dealt with or a trauma that we didn't address. And one thing I found that really helps me is to get curious about how I'm feeling and what I'm feeling when I feel triggered or when I feel like my buttons have been pressed. Instead of blaming the other person for making me feel bad, I just take a minute or two and I watch the way my body and my emotions are reacting. And often I then realize, oh, the way Don is behaving is similar to Travis, my bully from seventh grade, or Mrs. Stevenson, my teacher from fourth grade, or Mrs. Steibel, my teacher in 11th grade. But this person isn't that bully. They aren't that teacher. And then I take a deep breath or three and I calm my body down so that I can calm my brain down. And then I move forward. So that's what we have for you in episode 132. If you're finding this podcast helpful, please share it with your friends. We're always hoping to get new subscribers so we can help more people. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Android. We're hosted on Blueberry.com. And also, we'd really appreciate it if you could write us a review of this podcast on Apple Podcasts. Be sure to join us next week for episode 133. We'll talk about how to deal with specific kinds of difficult people, difficult classmates, students, and teachers. You've been listening to Learning Made Easier, a podcast about how we learn, how we teach, and how they overlap. We want to say thank you to all of our supporters on Patreon who make this podcast possible. If you want to support us, please go to www.patreon.com slash learningmadeeasier. And we look forward to seeing you next week.